0: starting. Let's start. Um, for those of you who are new, for those of you who are new, um, I can't even remember when we started this, I think at the beginning of the year, January, February, I'm not no. sure when. October. Um, I had been doing a class on called Literature's Prophecy at St. Francis for four or five years. Um, I took it over when the, when the man who was doing adult catechesis was teaching um, Moby Dick. And what, that's not the way to... He started a literature group because he believed that it was really important for people to read literature. Um, and if you know anything about your, our church, you know how true that is, that most of, the, most of the important people, or a lot of the important people in our church in the last few years have had a background in literature. John Paul did, Benedict did... Um, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, um, some of the great apologists of our time um, have a background in literature, and I don't think that's an accident, because literature takes us into the hidden lives that all of us have. And so we can learn about ourselves and each other by reading it, and I think it helps us um, develop powers of seeing and feeling that we just wouldn't have without it. Um, anyway, I started the class and Father Flynn, for those of you who may not know that, was the pastor here for five years and he left. We had become close. I, I, I so admire him. I just have so much respect for him. We've continued to speak together. I, I see him sort of regularly and talk with him about having a course here. So I offered it. in uh, When we started the St. Francis course, I went back to the beginnings right away. Because after we did Moby Dick we went back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and Dante, and forward to Shakespeare and into the modern world. I didn't want to do that at Seton because um, I just thought it was too big a jump to get people to go back to the Iliad and the Odyssey because it's such a strange world to us. So what I did instead is start with the modern world. We started with Shakespeare and the reason for doing that is that, um, that Shakespeare wrote plays on, every, on, on, on almost every major important regime in the ancient world and in the modern world. We started with Merchant in Venice and Othello because both of those plays are on the commercial republic. That's our regime. That's, that's us. He knew that. So he had things to show us about ourselves that I, I think most people don't know. So we did Merchant of Venice, and those of you who were there will remember it, the struggle between Old Testament law and New Testament law and what Portia does to reconcile problems. Um, she's an extraordinary person. He, he, he sees these, these principal truths behind um, all all, peop, all regimes. So he can see into character in ways most people don't who don't have a sense of regimes. All of us were raised in a commercial regime. We weren't raised in Russia or Bolivia. Or, and Shakespeare, was a, I mean, part of his great gifts rests on the fact that he sees the connection between the two of those. So he started with the Merchant of Venice and Othello, and we went to All's Well, or. Um, um, All's Well? No, All's Well that Ends Well? Yeah, All's Well Ends Well because it had an extraordinary woman who was the center of that play. So it, it gave us a chance again to look at women. Portia was the heroine of Merchant of Venice, those who know it, and then in um, All's Well we've got an image of an extraordinary woman, very modern um, and she's an image of a woman that I don't think most moderns are aware of. I mean, she, what she did is extraordinary in that play. Um, she transforms the whole regime. Um, We went from there to Anthony and Cleopatra because in that play we have um, foreshadowings of Christ coming into the world. And from there we went to the ancient world. We went to the Iliad and you know that we finished the Iliad when we started and we um, we had just begun the Odyssey um, when the plague hit. And so tonight what I want to do is go back and pick up the Odyssey and, and we'll move forward. Um, we'll probably spend a couple of weeks on the Odyssey and then we'll do the Aeneid and in the Aeneid what Virgil's doing this relates so closely to our Catholic faith. In the Aeneid, Virgil's gonna sh- go beyond what Homer did in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into the class but he will deal with the founding of Rome and Rome coming into existence marks a major step even before Christ comes because it's the timeless universal city. That won't mean much to you until we read it, but it's unlike any other city founded and that city turned out to be the center of Christendom of the Catholic world, you know that. Um, so in amazing ways it's, it's anti- like so many of the works we're reading, it's anticipating Christ. From there we will go to Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, and then on to Dante. So that's the immediate goal of the work that we're doing. Um, Boethius's Consolation. If if we stay together, you'll you'll discover that it's one of the most extraordinary. I think one of the most extraordinary books you'll read. It it is one of the most important books of the Middle Ages. It's it's very small, but in that short work, he manages to. Um, synthesize everything of play, everything of real importance in Plato and Aristotle. And he's looking forward to Dante and St. Thomas, so it's an amazing little book. Um, it's, it's a true story, it's, it, it's a story Boethius wrote while he was in jail. He was falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit and executed. And the story begins with him in jail, um, <laughs> Mary will like this, whining because he's he's feeling sorry for himself because um, he's and and it's true this is truthful he's he's gonna he's gonna be executed for a crime he didn't commit so the story is the job story but taken to a depth that job never faces the, the question that he's dealing with is why does God allow bad things to happen to good people and why do evil people prosper so it's a timeless story it's an extraordinary story um, it's very short. We'll read after the Aeneid, our next work. We will read Boethius, and then from there we'll go to Divine Comedy. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't know that all of you are aware of this, but a couple of years ago, Francis, Pope Francis, made a point of saying to the entire church, he asked the entire church two years ago to read Dante, the Divine Comedy. So it'll be timely. I mean, you'll what you'll discover when we read Dante is everything that's said in the uh, um, the catechism, the, the catechism, is that the Burke, what's it called, the catechism? Catech-
1: catechism of the church.
0: Huh? The catechism. Yeah, the, um, the catechism of the church. Everything that's in that book is in Dante, except it's in a dramatic form. So nobody's lecturing at You or talking about it's It's a person actually experiencing the world in a way that reveals every important truth about the Catholic faith. That's how extraordinary it is. It's really important. And if we're still together, from there we'll go to Shakespeare, back to Shakespeare, and then into the modern world. But I don't want to jump ahead too fast. So, just what's immediately before us is to finish the Odyssey, start the Aeneid, and from the Aeneid go on to Boethius and then Dante. Um, the the practice that I've followed for the last several years has been to start every class with a lyric poem, and a prayer. Um, ordinarily, I would ask people for prayers, but I'm going to not do that for a while because of the complications on this. Um, I hope to get back to it, um, but, but I think I'm probably going to want to do it differently. Um, I don't want to close off the prayers because I just think it's been too important for us. I think what I'll do is ask you to write us and ask for prayers, and then I will pray for whatever it is you're asking for. but. I'd rather not take time in class because technically it's so, it's so cumbersome and time-consuming. So I want to be careful of our time. Um, that's it. Um, we say a prayer. One of the reasons I read lyrics um, is that they so directly speak to what we're doing as a class. One of the things that I've been maintaining from the beginning is that... Um, I don't know how to put this simply enough. Um, Every work of art assumes a center, a musical center. I know that must sound um, outrageous, but um, every work of art assumes a musical center, a harmony. So even though you have a work like Dante's that's 300 pages long, or, or the Ilion, which is 300 pages long, um, one of the things that I struggle to do with each one of those works is try to get to the very center of that work to make sense of the whole work and if you give that any thought you'd see how immediately true it is and how hard it is to do. Because to do that means we have to get to the intuition at the center of every work that held the whole work together. Otherwise why doesn't work fly off the pages and go in a hundred different directions at once? Homer tells us these two stories that are 300 pages long what unifies them? What, what keeps them from flying off the page? If you, if you know anything about Homer, you know that every one of his poems, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and some minor things he did, are written to verse. They're put to music. There's a rhythm. So there's a musical element to, to everything in the ancient world because the great poets in the ancient world understood that that the only way to capture what was going on in reality is through music, some harmony, some unity, um, a harmony between parts, because they believed that there was a God or a divine order bringing that to the world. So when you're reading the Iliad, just for an example, when you're reading the Iliad, you can't read two pages without feeling violence everywhere. Men are killing each other right and left. It's, It's nothing but violence. And yet, it's tied together by a harmony, by music. But in translations, and because of the length of the works, we lose sight of that. And I don't want to lose sight of that. So one of my ways of trying to answer that was to begin each class with a lyric poem so that you could hear music. And all the poems were chosen um, because of the way in which they present Christ. Because the purpose, I think I've said this, I may not have said it yet, but the purpose of the class... Is to find Christ in the world, not in church, not in prayers, not in a rosary, outside the walls of a church, in our families, in our work, down the street, um, in the conflicts that we have within families, in the conflicts in our cities. You, you mean you can't miss them today? Everybody's going to look at what's going on in the streets today and think there's no God in this world. It's all violence. But all of these poets are dealing with violence and making it clear there is a God in the world. He's behind everything. Even if human beings are doing stupid things, there's a God working, bringing order to everything. He's he's, he's honoring our free will, which means he's giving us room to do stupid things and still working to bring us to him and bring order out of all the chaos that we're involved in. So the fundamental purpose of the course is to find Christ, to, to see him at work in the world and what characters do. We saw that with Portia, we saw it with Helena. I I, I tried to suggest that it was there with Achilles and we're going to go back to the, the Odyssey now and I hope to show that Homer had some glimpse of Christ long before Christ ever came into the world. So that's what we're doing and the and the lyric poems are just my effort to read these small poems that are are more obviously musical to remind everybody that music harmony order beauty is behind everything we're doing and and indirectly that's an expression of christ he is the word there's there's nothing nothing christ said or did that wasn't in harmony with his father's will with the divine order so it's learning to see our God concretely around us, um, hopefully when it's not easy to see him. Because <laughs> sometimes if we're in our families or having a fight or an argument or we're watching violence in the streets, it's it's very hard to find Christ in any of that. Part of the point here is that he's there, even if we don't see him. So um, one of the purposes of the course is to Try to open our eyes, um, open our ears to see if we can see better, to feel better, and things like that. Um, any questions about that? That's just a sort of general description of what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do. Any? I must not have said something right. Mary, you have nothing to say about that. Can you guys hear me? Are you, have you, you all muted yourself? No questions? I, I can hear you. Okay, okay. It's good to see you all. It's good to see you all. Good to see you all, genuinely. Um, okay, um, I'm gonna start. So those are on dark, yeah. Um, I'd like to start with a prayer. We always do and then I'm gonna read the poem, okay? So um, I feel a little bit awkward By the way, just so you know, I I don't think I can feel any more awkward than I do right now because I'm so, well, I'm so used to being together with you physically so that we're all together in the same room, to not be in the same space. I I so look forward to getting back in a room with you all together, but anyway, um, I'll start with a prayer. Ordinarily, I'd ask for prayers, but for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to, way to do that if any of you have troubling prayers please send them to us and i'll include them weekly as we go forward i am I, saying that more seriously than i can say um the prayers have been a gift to us it 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 makes your world a part of ours it helps make our world a part of your own so i'm i'm asking that pretty earnestly so let's start In name of the father son holy spirit Um glad to be together again, genuinely glad. Where two or three are gathered together, um, you're there. Um, I'm grateful that we can pick up again and continue our work. Um, I want to express my gratitude. Um, thank you, Lord, for um, all that these poets give us. It's, it's a wisdom that the modern world has turned away from. I'm glad to have some part in trying to recover it. To help pass it on. Um, help all of us to be open to what you're showing even though it's indirect. Um, it's still you. Um, you're at work present. You were before you came. Um, help us to be open to, in this case, Homer and what he's showing. Um, I ask a blessing on everybody present even, um, even though it, I've ask everybody to hold off in prayers. I know everybody carries something. Um, um, Family members usually mostly friends. Where there are heavy burdens where anybody, Mary, Connie, um, any of you um, have um, things that are weighing on your heart, hear them please and answer them. I ask for a spirit of patience in everybody and openness. Um, we, we pray waiting on you, your will. And often when it doesn't correspond to our own, we can get angry, foolish thing to do. Um, nobody's wiser than you are. It teaches us to wait, to trust in you. So strengthen each of us in our trust in you, our faith, and everything we do help us to bring you um, our words to our actions. Um, I ask a special prayer as we go forward with these works. Whatever we're learning with these works, help us to live them in our lives, not just leave them in our heads. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, the poem tonight that I'm reading is from Hopkins. Those of you who've been here before know that um, Um oh my God. Um, you know that um, Hopkins was a Jesuit priest who lived in the 19th century. He was raised Anglican and he became involved in the Tractarian movement. It was that um, sorry Oh hold on wow, hold on. Oh, George, hold on, sorry. I should be paying attention. Um, um, he was raised Anglican and mid-century, if you know anything about um, our church history, you know that 19th century a lot of people were upset at the Protestant church in England because it had become so liberal, it had become lax, and people wanted to reform the church, so um, a large number of men got involved in this what they called the Tractarian movement and they were writing tracts publicly, making them public. But it was during that time that many of those men as they began to investigate the history of church began to realize that the problem wasn't in reforming the church it was with Protestantism itself and they converted. They began to see that that the problems that they wanted to resolve couldn't be resolved, that the only way of answering them was to go back to the Catholic Church. So John Henry Newman converted um, who was one of the great figures of the 19th century, great, great figures, and um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. When he left his family they almost didn't speak to him because they really felt, that, I mean if you know, you know that for lots of Protestants the Catholic Church is the Antichrist. I mean it's the enemy. Um, so when he converted um, it, it, it created all these tensions between him and his family, um, he decided to become a priest and he entered the Jesuit order which added, is it insult to injury? Um, because to the English, the Jesuits are the specific enemy of the English world, because the Jesuits have been trying for centuries to, to bring England back into the fold, so when he became a Jesuit priest it made it worse. In fact, he, the Jesuits could not practice them, they were outlawed. So um, Hopkins ordination had to take place secretly. He had been a poet, he was an extraordinary poet, and he reached a point um, after his ordination, I think, when he wanted to burn all of his poems. And um, the, his spiritual advisor told him not to and thankfully we've got a lot of his poetry. If you've not read him, you should go online and read particularly a a work like The Windhover, which I think is one of his greatest works. It's very simple. It's a beautiful poem. We've read it in class. The Windhover, Kingfisher's Catch Fire was another one we've read. Um, I'm going to read some more in the next couple of weeks. I think I'm going to stay with Hopkins for the next few weeks. Um, So tonight I'm reading, um, it's not one of his best poems, but it 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 speaks directly to his faith and so I thought it would speak more directly to us. I'm going to read some of his harder poems over the next couple of weeks just to stay with him. But the poem tonight is called The God I Come From. If it isn't microphones, it's my glasses. The God I Come From. Thee, God, I come from, to thee go. All day long I like fountain flow from thy hand out, swayed about, moat-like in thy mighty glow. What I know of thee I bless as acknowledging thy stress on my being and as seeing something of thy holiness. Once I turned from thee and hid, bound on what thou hadst forbid, so the wind I would, I sinned. I repent of what I did. Bad I am, but yet thy child. Father, be thou reconciled. Spare thou me, since I see with thy might that thou art mild. I have life left with me still, and thy purpose to fulfill, yet a debt to pay thee yet. Help me, sir, and so I will. But thou bidst, and just thou art, me show mercy from my heart. Towards my brother, every other man, my mate and counterpart. Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross. Molded, he in maiden's womb, lived and died, and from the tomb rose in power and is our judge. It comes to deal our doom. That's a poem by Hopkins. Where are the teachers? We had a teacher table where are these teachers tonight? Boy, well, I'm going to have hard words for somebody. Um, okay, um, buckle up. Here we go, you guys. I'm, um, um, the young man who was helping me isn't here any longer. He, Michael Grosso is, is a UD graduate and he's been helping Suzanne and me with our computer problems forever. And he helped put this together. Let me remind you before we start, Michael set this up. He's not here. He's gonna show me a way to get papers to you. There's some way I, I don't know what to do and I didn't want to take up time tonight. I've got some notes, I've got a, um, a couple of pages with schemes of the various regimes in the Odyssey and some things that Odysseus does that I think will help you. So um, tomorrow, or, yeah, tomorrow I'll talk with Michael and find out how to do it. And I'll send you guys some. Um, what I would ask you to do um, tonight or tomorrow, please, send a letter, I'll give you her email in a minute, send a letter to Suzanne um, so that she has your email. Because what I'd like to do is gather the emails together for those of you who are in the group tonight and send them to you. And, and I'll manage with other people later, but at least I'd like to get them to you, okay? Um, if you would please send your emails to her, not to me, it would be, I'd be really grateful. Um there's just a lot to do. Um and I think I think that's all. I feel a little bit discombobulated, but I think that's all. So um okay, let's let's start. The Odyssey. Okay. I'm <laughs> For those of you know you know because i've been at this position before i always feel a little bit awkward stepping into the role of a catechist because i'm not even though indirectly that's what i'm doing before we begin i want to i want to take a few minutes to talk about marriage okay it's it's a little bit it's not directly related to the poem so just know that i'm aware of that okay but i think it will help um when we go back to the poem and start finding out what's there. Um, The purpose of the Course is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him um, everywhere in our life. The Odyssey deals fundamentally, the fundamental theme, the theme that unifies everything that goes on in that work is a homecoming. It's nostos. I'm sorry I don't have a a board. I'm I'm thinking about getting a board up, but I have to learn how to manage the stuff still. Nostos, N-O-S-T-O-S, nostos. It's the Greek word for home. You know from the work that we did before we stopped, that that's the fundamental theme. The fundamental theme of the Iliad was kleos, K-L-E-O-S, kleos, honor. The fundamental theme of the Odyssey is homecoming. It has to do with the rule of the home, what constitutes a good home, what makes a good home. That's what everything's about. And at the center of a home is a marriage. There is no home without one in some sense for Homer. Um, and it's, it's um, one of the central principles of the Catholic Church. The sacraments are built around them. Um, um, nostos means home. Nostalgia means a longing for something we once had. We know from Dante when we get there that um, nostos will be one of the central themes of the Divine Comedy. Because for Dante, the whole effort of everything he does is to get home. Nostos, it's already there in Homer. To go home. Our home is not here. Saint Augustine said, we're a pilgrim, a peregrine, a peregrine people. There are two cities for Saint Augustine. The city of man, the city of God. The city of man is that city pointed towards hell. The city of God is that city pointed towards the divine reality after this one. There's this in-between community, what he called a pilgrim community, in exile, trying to get home. That's St. Augustine. So everything that Odysseus is doing is trying to get home to be reunited with his wife and his son because he's been separated for 20 years. So everything he does is to get home to recover his family. That's the central theme of this work. Um, Louise Cowan once said about the epic, let me read this for you, can you guys hear me okay? Am I coming through okay? If I sit back, can you still hear me okay? Okay. Louise Cowan once wrote this about the epic. She said, A primary feature of the epic cosmos is its penetration of the veil separating material and immaterial existence, allowing an intimate relation between the gods and men and a resultant metaphysical extension of space. I know that's pretty dense but hold on for a second. A second feature is its eschatological expansion of time and third It's restoration of an equal between masculine and feminine forces. Okay, three things. In the epic, you know that when the poet begins, he asks the goddess, Calliope, um, Mimosine, to go back in time to recover a world that's lost. We can only get back to it through memory, through what's lost. It's in the past. When we go back to that world once we enter it, unlike the real world that Homer lived in, because in you know he's walking around like you and me doing whatever he did, when we go back to that world we enter into a world in which the gods are constantly interacting with men. So we'd see a divine order constantly involved with men. In the Iliad, remember, the Iliad had to do with male force everywhere. But what we saw in the Iliad was that the gods were actively involved in a war, trying to put a curb on that force to bring some meaning to it. And you know, those of you who have done this with me, that finally the the war is only resolved when Achilles accepts his own fate and gives his life up because he knows when he goes back in the war, he's gonna die. So the fundamental act at the center of the Iliad is a man giving up his life and making it possible because of what he does to bring that war to an end. So when we go back into that world, we're entering a world um, in which we see the gods interacting with human beings. That's one of the qualities of the epic. Um, she said it a metaphysical extension of space. So what we learn in an epic is that the, the the world as we know it, in terms of time and space, you know, you you guys are there, I'm here, Suzanne's sitting on the couch a few feet away, that with a metaphysical extension of space, we realize that no matter what's going on here right in front of us, there's a divine order interacting with ours. So reading the epic teaches us to be seers of distances. Whatever is immediate and up close has an extension far away and deeper. We're aware of a divine reality entering ours, penetrating ours, interacting with ours. Okay, And the third quality was that in the epic, um, whatever happens in it um, deals directly with the struggles between men and, men and women. Because after the fall, one of the effects of the fall was this estrangement, this tension, these conflicts between men and women. Because before the fall, um, Adam and Eve loved God. Their whole hearts were on him. Once they turned from him, they became selfish and turned their loves towards each other, and rivalries began. So one of the effects that we're dealing with since the fall is trying to recover that wholeness we once had with God. That's fundamental to this work, the Odyssey, because what we saw when we were together, when we looked at those very, I'll come back to this in a minute, when we looked at the marriages that began, you know, when Telemus went to visit Nestor and allowances, and Nestor and Menelaus both had good homes, they had good marriages. But it wasn't, they weren't as complete as Odysseus' marriage, which we'll experience at the end of the book when Odysseus finally gets home. So in the Odyssey, Homer's showing us different homes, different marriages, but the possibility that a couple can unite The way the church calls us to unite in marriage become one flesh, that's our call. And I'm assuming that most of you have been married for a long time knowing that's not easy to do, Um, that that involves a struggle for most of us. So um, marriage is at the center of this book. Um, Christ called us to love one another and Christ constantly speaks of his ties to us, the church in terms of a spousal marriage, a relationship. He's the groom, the church is his bride. We are asked to live that image of his love in our marriages. So men are, in the, in, according to the biblical tradition, men are the head, the, they assume the role of headship of the family, but the husband is asked to serve the wife the way Christ does his church and the woman is asked to serve her husband the way the church does Christ. So that there's this reciprocal love that we're called to. At the the root of it, if you think about it, it's asking us um, to put ourselves away, to love another for the good of the other. Okay, that to serve somebody doesn't mean just passively letting them do whatever they wanna do. If they're serving each other, a man and a woman, they're both trying to help each other become who God gave them to be. Yeah, so marriages were never intended to just let us you know, sort of let things go and they were meant to help us grow into the love that Christ offered us. And and I'm trusting that everybody knows, if you know our faith, that there's no way for that to happen without a cross. There's simply no way for that to happen. So the cross is at the center of it. Um, I want to take a couple of positions here in marriage. It, it's easy to look at Christ's call to ask us to love and dissociate it from the Trinity. And I think that's a mistake. We know, we believe, I think most of us Catholics, that we're made in God's image. Um, but if that's true, and Godhead is a Trinity of persons, and that's our belief, then we know that um, if we're made in God's image, there's something Trinitarian in in every one of us, that our love will never be fulfilled unless it is completed with another. It can be Christ, it can be our wife, it can be whoever it's going to be. Lots of people don't marry. Um, But in a marriage, if we're taking our call seriously, it means... To love one another means to indwell so that the two become one. The Church calls it becoming one flesh. Now I say this all very carefully because I know from my own experiences and I know from everything I've read that's easier to talk about than to do. I mean I think we all know that. To indwell with another means um, to it's marriage is an adventure. It's exactly like what Odysseus goes through in his life. Marriage is an adventure. There's no way to enter into the interior to become one with another person without taking on something of those persons' sins, those burdens. So every marriage involves a risk and an adventure. We have to bear the sins of another. That person has to bear our sins. So there's always an element of suffering involved in any growth in love. It's going to cost us all. And this goes directly to the poem because you know, those of you who have been reading it know that Odysseus is a hero is called um, um she called it a man of a man of many, a man of many ways, long suffering Odysseus. Long suffering Odysseus. There's almost nothing he does that doesn't involve some pain. So um now just quickly, because uh, I want to be careful over here over time. But I'd like everybody to be aware of some of the obstacles to marriages today. The scientific world believes that chance created the world. There is no God, there's no miracles. There's just chance and evolution. They believe that each each individual is a product of forces over which he has no control. Science attempts to deal with material necessities, what can't be otherwise. Okay, it's a law, whatever those laws are. At the root of our faith is a belief that man has free will, and miracles are possible. So, there's a tension there between the way we stand in the world and the way sciences do. The sciences are going to look for those things that can't be other than they are, material necessities. The church always believes, encourages us not to forget, we have free will, we can do it, we can make choices that can't be predicted, that can't be predicted, that can't be controlled, and they often involve us in in miracles. So those two views are um, are in tension with with each other. The Protestant world, by and large, um, even the higher churches in the Protestant world, um, tend to more increasingly frown on miracles and more and more often deny the real presence when that's one of our major sacraments. Um, The the fundamentalist Protestant world believes that the whole world is corrupt, that man is utterly fallen, that one of the consequences of the fall was utter corruption. We are depraved by nature. There's nothing good in nature. That could not be farther away from Homer's view of the world. The Protestant fundamentalist believes that we can only be saved by Christ's grace, but without it we're depraved. So the natural world is fouled. It's ugly, it's dark. Um, Homer never turns away from disorders or sins, but Homer doesn't believe either that that nature is depraved. A lot of good goes on in nature. So in that sense, the Catholic world and the natural world, the ancient world, are more compatible with each other than lots of modern beliefs. If you take both of those views, the the scientific and the Protestant, um, you'll see that Both of them encourage a tendency in most moderns to deny that there's any logos in the world. For the ancient world this term logos meant there is this intelligibility, this divine order. Everything means something. Their gods are at work. For a Christian understanding the logos was Christ, the Word. He was the means of creation. He is visible. He's present in everything in creation. So, um, um, Pope Benedict, you can look this up, it's it's actually um, an address worth reading. In his Regenberg address in in Germany, when he was Pope, he gave an address, and in that address he said, he was concerned about the Christian fundamentalists and the Islamic fundamentalists because both of them denied a Logos. And it made it easier for, for both of them to dismiss the good going on in the natural world. When according to a Catholic, I mean, we believe that God is always at work there. So there are lots of um, philosophies, worldviews, in effect in our modern world, that, that um, fly directly in the face of our faith. One of the things I hope to show in going back to the Odyssey is that there are so many things going on before Christ came into the world that were actually compatible with what Christ did. Remember, when Christ came into the Word, he assumed our nature.? Okay? Um, nobody believed until nobody believed up until that time that our nature was depraved, it was fallen. It was in sin. The, the teaching of the church in the early years was that um, the consequence of our fall was never depravity. it was a wound. We were wounded, but not depraved. We couldn't get to heaven without Christ's help. So there's this wonderful merging, this dovetailing between reason and faith, nature and grace in our faith, okay? That we we can carry into our marriages, okay? So when you think about marriages in this, remember it's, it's the central thing, Odysseus getting home, but there, so there are things that ways of looking at the world that Homer shows us that are so at odds with the way the modern world looks at the world. You know, he's telling us a story in which the gods are involved in everything. He's watching the gods do good things in the face of stupid things men do. Um, We're not in a sacramental world, but we are in a world in which the divine order is active in everything that goes on with men. Okay? So with that brief introduction, um let me stop. Any questions up to this point? Before we get to the book. Got
1: everybody muted.
0: Hmm?
1: Got everybody muted.
0: No, can you all hear me? Are you guys all if you if you want to say something, unmute just be sure you unmute and you'll come on, okay? You all set? Something's wrong. I can't believe some of you don't have questions. Okay, okay, let's go. Last time we met, remember, we looked at what structurally we called it telemichai. Telemachi, thanks. Telemachi. You know who the real teacher is here. Telemichai. In the opening books we saw Telemachus, we, 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 we experienced Odysseus' home going to ruin. There are a hundred suitors. That means something. The fact that it's hundred means there's some symbolic, something going on. His home's in disarray. A young boy has grown up without a father and he's reached a point of adulthood where he's in despair. Um, he hates what's going on. He doesn't have the strength to deal with it or the courage, he te- he tends to whine, he tends to despair a lot. The irony is, as, as we read through the passage, we're aware that Athena is with him even if he doesn't know it. So we're immediately aware that even if human beings don't see the God active in their life, he is, or she is in that case. And I remember asking the question when Telemachus visited Nestor when Athena was right next to him and Nestor said, if only Athena were here, She'd help you out of this predicament. Nestor doesn't see. And I remember asking, why doesn't Athena just come out and say, I'm here, stupid. Stop stop whining. That's what what Mary said to me. Stop whining. Um, Why doesn't she do that? And I think the answer is obvious because if she did, he would learn to depend on her too much and he wouldn't grow up. So part of her wisdom is shown in the fact That she's, she's helping him, but she's doing it in a way that allows him to have to struggle to grow into himself. So we're seeing an instance of an ancient wisdom um, playing itself out in what goes on between Athena and Telemachus. And you remember in the early books he, he, he finally reached a point because it was Athena's inspiration to him to go seek out his father to see if he could learn about him where he was. So he travels to Nestor's home and he travels to Menelaus' homes. Both of them were great warriors in the war. We, we experienced both of them in the Iliad. What, he learned, what we learn in Nestor's home is that, this is really interesting about marriages. Um, when he comes to Nestor's home, Nestor's saying prayers with his son when they get there. But when he's welcomed into the home, Nestor can talk about nothing but the war. He goes on and on and on. If you remember the Iliad, whenever we had scenes dealing with Nestor, he could never talk about anything except his battles, his exploits, about the great things that he did as a young man. And we only get one line that I remember describing his wife. So in Nestor's home, I don't don't know that I can be delicate enough about this, we've got an image of a man who's so full of himself that he makes no place for his wife. It's a good marriage, he's there, he's a brave man, but we're aware of that. When we go to Menelaus's home, we see another good marriage, a good home. But once again, it's a couple that's caught in the past. Because remember, the cause of the war was Menelaus's wife, Helen, running off with Paris. And when Helen finally comes down, she recognizes Telemachus immediately, and she offers him potions, because her answer to the pain of the past is to take drugs and offer them. And I remember raising that question because it was a serious one. If your way of dealing with the past is to take drugs so you don't have to deal with them, what son is gonna avenge his father or his mother or a family member? If something happens, what's he gonna do about it? If his answer to problems is taking drugs, Justice won't ever be done. So what we experience in both homes, they're very different, but in one way they're similar, because both of them can't let go of the past. So in one sense, what we become aware of is that what Odysseus is doing when he leaves Troy is struggling with all of these things to come home. And one of the things that we'll discover when he comes home is that he's got to learn to deal with problems in the here and now. He can't let that past overwhelm him or define his life. That's exactly what Christ teaches. We are not to live in the in the guilt and sorrows of the past, we have to let them go. The new birth, the risen Lord, we have to die, let the past go, Um, struggle to live in the now. So we can't let before or after, because sometimes people can Um, desire things so much that they're still not living. I mean, there's two dangers. We can go back to the past and live in the past or want things so much that we're not living in the present. What Homer's showing us is that the great struggle here is to come into the present to recover this order in his home and his ties with his wife. Okay. You guys ask questions anytime. Jump in, please. Because it seems to me that all of this touches home. I mean, most of us I, I'm assuming most of us struggle with these things, oh, you know, they're a big part of our lives. Um, so, homecoming doesn't just mean returning from war and going back to a place with four walls. It means something far more. Um, so one of the one of the major themes, homecoming, another theme is a new kind of hero. Remember that Achilles' choice was... Um, long comfortable life or short life with honor. Remember? He could have a long comfortable life or he could risk and, and take a risk that might cost his life. Um, and I remember saying to you, I remember because I, I struggled with that for the longest time, you know, when I first began teaching and then I realized that's that's the same destiny every one of us has. Um, we can live comfortably and avoid risking ourselves, there are times when we have to put ourselves at risk and the cost of it sometimes is great. So the choice before Achilles was a long comfortable life or a short life with honor and you know that he chose the latter. Except what's going on in the in the um, Odyssey is neither. So in Odysseus we're being shown a new kind of hero. It's not somebody who had a choice between a long comfortable life or a life short life with honor because he'd have to take a risk that would involve his death it's something new and the difference is he's called long-suffering Odysseus that Odysseus is a hero who has to bear things I want to underscore that for a moment because um, I didn't see this too late in my reading but one of the things that makes me love the Odyssey so much is I think the Odyssey is the first what I would call anti-romantic book. It's a critique of the romantic mind because the romantic mind tends to idealize something I want this, this is what I need to be happy and if I don't get it I'm going to be miserable. It's a black-white mindset. If you don't get it you run away. If you don't get it you kill yourself. Yeah? We tend to idealize and think if I only had this because remember, the choice that Achilles faces, long, comfortable life, short life with honor. Odysseus has to get home. So there's no way he's going to escape suffering. So what Odysseus, or what Homer's showing us in the Odyssey is what I would call the anti-Romantic. The romantic tends to exaggerate what he wants, put all of his eggs there. If he doesn't get it, he either let's say marriage, goes away, suffers, walks away, despairs. This is about enduring, and if you remember Saint Paul, the, the two virtues that underlie love are endurance and hope. Where Paul? Oh, you look at Paul's life. God, can you pick out a phase of Paul's, Paul's life after his conversion that didn't immediately involve him in suffering, scourging, whipping, imprisonment, defilement, persecution? Stone. He kept, huh? stoning. Sorry, stoning. Is that it? You know, in all of his letters, he kept saying, endure, 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 because it helps you to love. Um, So Odysseus is in some ways prefiguring Christ in that way, and even Paul. Um, So another theme, the son looking for the father, Telemachus going off in search of his father, and through his searching, we're introduced into two homes, the Pylos and Sparta, Nestor and Menelaus. They're both good homes. Um, But Telemus is going to go on. We're going to meet Odysseus. And then we're going to be taken on all these adventures. Um, Another important thing. The openness. An openness to the divine. When you read the beginning of the book. It's impossible to watch the suitors. And not be aware of how obdurate. Absolutely obdurate they are. The gods keep sending signals, they send people to warn them. They will not hear, they don't see, they don't hear. Telemachus has sent help, he hears, he sees. So one of the qualities that we're being made aware of that defines Odysseus and that distinguishes him from other men is his openness to the gods. And if you're taking seriously what I said earlier, if we're looking at this seriously in our faith, we know. There's nothing, there's nothing, nothing that goes on in our life that doesn't involve Christ. Whatever's going on, whatever suffering we endure, he's there. He's not going to leave us. In the Odyssey, we're seeing um, Odysseus, very responsive to the gods. Telemachus, very responsive. The suitors, not at all. The maidservants, not at all. So there are large groups of people here who do not see, who do not listen, who do not hear. They're too involved in... Whatever it is they want in the world. So so here, just before we look concretely at the book, I want to just suggest three ways in which Odysseus prefigures Christ. Okay. Um, remember we did this with each one each one of our works. So the first The whole action is directed towards getting home. Odysseus is leaving a war in which he's been involved for 10 years. He wants to return home. Um, Christ was in exile here. His home was not here. He said, remember, Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This was not his home. When he came here, he was in exile. I've said this before when we've talked about these works. We're in exile. Saint Augustine said, this is not our home. If we try to make this our home, we're in trouble because we're supposed to be on a journey. We're a pilgrim people. The, the, the embodiment of that city is the church. In the church, we're supposed to be moving towards Christ. It's the reunion in our marriage with him so in one sense, he prefigures Christ because he's in exile. He wants to get home. Christ was in exile. Christ was a long-suffering person. It was not his home. He wanted to return to the Father. He knew he'd have to go to a cross. As, as Christians, um, whose faith is in him, we are asked to participate in that journey, to know that this is not our home. We're in exile. Even if we have a home. We know it's not, it's not supposed to be permanent. We're on our way somewhere. So is Odysseus. The second way in which he's like Christ is that he's long-suffering. Until he's home, he won't be content. If this is not our home, how can we ever find complete happiness here? The only happiness will be in our union with Christ, whether it's here momentarily or, you know, or finally when we're at home. We just lost a good friend couple of days ago a dear dear friend for ages and so often at least when I know people that kids in our own family who've lost a friend my response to them is always be glad sorrow um, express your sorrow you're losing somebody you've lost grief is natural but make a place for gladness this man's going home he's going home he will be free of the suffering that we know. So in a second way is like Christ, it's that he's called long-suffering. There's nothing he will experience that won't involve some suffering until he gets home. And the third way um, is, it's going to be harder to pin down, but it's going to be really important. I'm going to come back to the skin. Um, Christ is the word. He is the word. He is the means of creation. There is nothing in creation that doesn't bear his stamp. One of the poems we read by Gerard Manley Hopkins was called Kingfisher's Catch Fire. It's in that poem in which Hopkins says everything, and everything in nature speaks, everything. Stones running down a well, a kingfisher, a flower, it does not matter. Everything in nature speaks his name. In a scientific world, that notion's lost because science will not open on mysteries. It will not go to God. So a whole way of looking at the world is lost to us, except through the poets. Hopkins says, everything speaks. If, if you looked out the back window and you looked at a bee or a flower or vegetables or trees or birds or your husband or wife, you'd have to say, there God is. There's Christ, there he is. How do we help, how do we help see him, adore him, love him? Um, Christ is the word. There's nothing he spoke that didn't express a harmony or a deeper wisdom. The poets do that. That's one of, you know that that's one of my claims all, in all of our time together. Odysseus is a man who can use language like nobody else in the book. In the opening lines, when it describes um, the, the journey he's going to take, it says his companions, fools, who lost the day of their homecoming. None of his companions, not any of them, get home and the word to describe them in the Greek is napios here take a look at the book if you got because we're going to go to the book in a minute take a look at the book um... opening line in the invocation it's about um... sixth or seventh line Even so, he could not save his companions, hard though he strove to. They were destroyed by their own wild recklessness, fools who devoured the oxen of Helios. What will bring them to their end is they will will eat the cattle of Helios when they've been told repeatedly, do not eat those cattle. We're going to come to that later. Um, But that, that first foot in the poetry, the very first foot of that line, fools who devoured... The Greek word for fools is napios, it means childlike, foolish, who can't use language. And I've talked about this important, how important language is. Imagine somebody coming out of a closet who never learned to speak, who came out in the world. I mean, how how would they even begin to relate to that world? Um, There's a correlation between our ability to use language and see things, and act, because the more, the more we see, the more we can take care in our actions, what we do. So um, Odysseus is an image, I think, foreshadowing, anticipating Christ in the way that he uses language because he's constantly having used language to get out of situation and to try to make them better. Um, and we'll, we'll see that what he does with words makes it clear he lives in a larger world. And I'll give you one example just quickly, we'll come to it. Um, and it'll, it'll get flushed out in a second. When he goes to the Cyclops and he meets the Cyclops, if you remember it, those of you who've read that far, remember when the Cyclops come in, into the caves there's this exchange of greetings. They're introducing each, each themselves to each other and um, the Cyclops asks Odysseus who he is and he says, my name is Nobody, if you all remember that. When Odysseus puts out the eye of the Cyclops and he stops screaming out of his mind, there's a, uh, remember there's a stone in in place, he, the, the Cyclops put it there so Odysseus' men couldn't escape. Odysseus' and men blind him and all of the Cyclops come running to help him when they hear him. And his response is, or they, they they're, they're cry to him is, who's hurting you by force and treachery? Who's causing you all this suffering? And the cyclops says, nobody's causing me any suffering. (laughs) So, and remember, they're they're creatures with one eye. So that one eye is an indication of a human being who is one dimensional in his thinking, who, who can't make a connection between the literal thing in front of him and something beyond. And we know from Odysseus that that's not so because he's aware of the gods. They play a a major role in everything he does in his life. So the role of language in this book is very important. And remember once again, it's the poet himself who's using words to bring this world to us, to make it available to us. And it deals with a hero whose use of words is absolutely crucial to everything he does, okay? So with that, what I want to do is I want to look at the sea adventures and go through them with you closely Um, for a reason I'll give in a minute. But let me stop for a second. Any questions? And I must be doing something wrong if there's no questions here. I I can't believe this. What's happened to you guys in the last three months? What's what's out this this plague has not got you guys? Go ahead, Karen or Karen and Bob. Did you guys have something or? I don't believe that. I don't believe. But anyway, no questions, Connie. Are you going to be here? I'm here. No, no questions. What happened to um, Kay and Dave? What happened to them? Um, Oh, good. Can't see you. Or yeah, yeah. Um, There you are. You disappeared. Are you guys? Can you hear everything? Are you guys? You okay? Okay. No questions. I must be doing, I must be, I must be out of, I must be really rusty. Something's wrong here. I must be doing something wrong. Okay, okay. Here's a question I want to put to you guys before we start. Um, I hope I've been clear about this extension of sight from what's up close to what's deep, what's far away, and the way that Homer helps us to have this depth of vision, if I can call it that. Um, Odysseus has been away 10 years at war. He wants to get home. By the way, if you haven't finished this book, finish it, finish it, you guys, because it's an extraordinary, it really is an extraordinary work. You know that when he sets off in one of the early adventures, when he, after he visits Aeolus, He's given a bag of wind and he's sent home. He's right offshore. He's home. Two adventures into the story. He's home and he falls asleep and his companions open up the bag. It's a bag of winds. We've got to talk about that, what that means. And they're sent out to sea again. So shortly after he leaves Troy, he's home. He won't return home for ten years, nine and a half years. So the cost of that one episode almost is his life. Okay. So here's the question that I want to put to you guys. God this. Sit back. It becomes clear as we move through the adventures that Odysseus cannot get home and bring to his family what he can because of his adventures. If he didn't have these adventures, he would not be able to bring to his home what he does at the end. These adventures are absolutely essential to his homecoming. So here's my question. What do these adventures show us about a man struggling to get back to his wife to recover his home? What does he learn about himself, about other men, and maybe more particularly about women that's absolutely essential for him to learn if he's to have the relationship with his wife that's possible between a man and a woman. And right now I'm thinking about Christ. Remember, because my opening lines were that we're, we're invited into a marriage to share in the spousal relationship that Christ has with his church. He's the groom, we're the bride. We're asked to love that. And, and that means a cross. And if we take seriously what I'm saying, it means long suffering. It means we have to learn to bear some things. What is that? What is it Odysseus learned? What is it that he has to learn in order to get home to be the husband that he could? And if that contrast isn't clear, set him against the suitors. Because we know that all 100 suitors want to marry Penelope. And we know if they marry her, they're doing it because they'll have the power to be king. They'll have all of his wealth. They'll have a beautiful woman. She'll be forced to marry them. So, if, I mean, set that marriage off against Odysseus. Here's this male power again. They'll, whoever will marry will be, king of the, will be king of the home, king of the island. He'll have all this power, all this wealth, and he can have this woman, have his will with her. So if the contrast, I mean, if the question that I'm asking isn't clear, set it off against that, because that's the alternative. He doesn't get, by the way, you know that when, when we leave Penelope, and in, ret- in return when Odysseus gets home, she's on the verge of marrying because she's lost hope that she'll ever see her husband again. So the two of them, Penelope and Odysseus, have been undergoing these trials for 20 years, both of them. She's had to raise a son alone. She's being attacked by all these men. She has to consent. So towards the end of the book, she's ready to finally marry one of those men. Imagine what that marriage will be like in comparison to Odysseus. So the question that I'm asking is because this is the center where we're going right now is the center of the book. What is it that is essential for Odysseus to learn in order for him to go home to have a good marriage with to, to, to in fact put it in, to go beyond the marriage he had when he left 20 years earlier. Is this, this when he gets home is the same man that he was 20 years earlier when he left home? Did he learn nothing from the war? Did he learn nothing from his adventures? What does he learn that helps make him a better man to make a better marriage? Is that clear? Any questions? So the, the, the center of the book is not, I, I want to put this as strong, the center of the book is not just you know, what kids do in high school. This is not an adventure story. Odysseus is on all these adventures. God, that stuff drives me nuts. It's what, what's happening to kids in school, I've got to stop myself right now. I don't, don't want to get started or I'll start, I'll start whining. Mary didn't even hear that. <laughs> is that clear?
2: The answer to your question is, is that he had to learn what his weaknesses were in order to come home and be, be the kind of husband he needed to
0: be. I think that's only part of it, Sue. It's Sue, yes. Yes. Yeah, Sue. I think it's only yeah. part of it because because when he comes home, it's not it's not just going to be a man of learning his weaknesses. He's got to learn to have strengths to deal with the disorders at home. I mean, he's going to be dealing with real evil. Um, self-effacement is going to be an important quality. I'll, I'll come back to that because it's, it, it's going to become explicit later. This is not just about learning weaknesses. It's, he's, he's going to have to do things that are, going to at, that are going to ask of him a strength and a power and an anger. And an anger. Without which he won't be able to do what he does. Um, and just to throw out something here it, it, I should have mentioned it when I was talking about language. You remember that, the, that um, we've talked about anger before, that the Iliad is about anger. Sing, muse the anger of Achilles' son, who And I suggested then that, that the modern world looks at anger as a bad thing. Wrath is a sin. Anger's not. Take away anger, and we have no way of dealing with evil in the world. Somebody comes in our house and starts to strangle our wife or husband, what do we do? Just quietly say, go ahead. Anger according to Aristotle and Homer is the rectifying virtue. When somebody threatens you, you say stop and mean it. If you've got 100 people or if you are here, look at the violence going on in the cities today. God, it just drives me nuts. Um, without policemen there, why would those people have to stop? If somebody doesn't come up to somebody and they're shooting people and doesn't say stop and mean it and these people are committed to violence they can't control themselves what do they do? Odysseus' name, Odysseus, Odysseus, Odyssei, the the Greek word means to bring anger to something or um, to arouse anger in another. And I want, I'd like to underline that here. Wherever Odysseus goes, wherever he goes, underscore this, he brings pain. Nobody escapes suffering when he's around. So in one way, Odysseus is an image of virtue. Because wherever he goes, people become aware of their faults and they suffer so, and, and his name is related to anger, so that in both poems, Hanger is sh- Homer is showing us, in a world of evil, what evil won't curb itself, it's important for somebody to have the strength to say, stop it, and mean it, okay? And that's so at odds with our world, because our whole modern world wants everybody to be nice and quiet and good and nice and not cause problems and... I can't believe there haven't been incidents in the lives of all of you where publicly you haven't said enough, no more, stop, you know, knock it off. Or my my words aren't as nice when I get to that point. <laughs> but anyway, um, okay, let's 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 look at what happens. I'd like to go through. Um, I wish I had the page. I'll send you guys a page. I'm just going to give you quickly the list of his adventures, and then I'd like to look at each of them briefly. And then next week, I'd like to concentrate on a number of them and look at them closely. Okay? Um, he go- after after the war, he leaves. The first adventures with the Coconians. It's on page 138. Don't don't worry about it right now. It's at 138. He's a sacker of cities. He's been at war. For 10 years, what else could he do? I hope that's clear. The first city he goes to, he's a sack he destroys. Bring a man home from war after he's been at war killing for 10 years, what would you expect? The second city, he goes to the Lotus Eaters. They take this flower potion and it makes them forget home. The third one, the Cyclops, the one-eyed giants. It'll be one of the longest episodes in his adventures. The fourth is the Aeolus. Uh, that gives him the bag of wind that sends him home and when he gets right offshore um, his companions open it and they lose home. The Lestrigonese, the Lestrigonese Queen, it's it's an image of a matriarchal world. It's a matriarch, it's a woman who's in charge and she's described as being larger than a mountain and all of these men serve her and they use this power to destroy, all of his ships are destroyed except one in that episode. So we're looking at a terrible power unleashed. Circe, he's with her for a year. He goes to the Cimmerians. It's in um, chapter 11. It's the land of the dead. Circe tells him he will not get home until he goes to the land of the dead. He has to learn to deal with death, with the dead. He has to learn something there that's essential for him to get home. Then the sirens, the, the beautiful voices that enchant in, um, in, in and entrap men. skill and scribdus, these two terrible monsters, he has to take his boat between them. And, um, and then finally Thranachia, it's at the island of Thranachia where the cattle of Helios, um, they exist. He, is warned, he and his men are warned by several different people not to eat. This is really crucial. Just real good. Um, They eat. Think about this. Eating is a very commonplace thing. What leads to their destruction is food. Um, I'm, I'm saying this. I'm trying to be provocative here. And I think I should probably open this up. It's food. It's one of the most. You can't live without food. Right? We, we can't live without it. Why would they be punished for eating food? What is so special about that food? And right now I just, I want to just throw this out. What would happen if somebody blasphemed the Eucharist? Wine and wafer. If that were God. So, Homer amazes me. Homer's on to something. This seemingly nothing thing, eating food, the cattle, the food of cattle, will lead to their destruction. Odysseus is the only one who survived. And once they leave, when uh, the ship is destroyed, you know that he um, he comes on the shore of Calypso's island, and it's there he's kept by Calypso for eight years. And it's only with the help of the gods, again, that he's freed after eight years, and um, um, he will leave and come to the island of Scaria, where he'll be with the Faiacans, it's there in the middle of the book when he gets to Scaria that he'll tell his stories of of his adventures. So um, he's with the Faiacans, he goes back to the beginning, and it's then that we get the whole line of adventures. And when the Faiacans hear his story, they are so taken by his adventures that they give him conveyance home. They will take him home. So that's the adventures, okay, just laid out. Now the question that I want to ask is, what does he learn, what's essential? Let me suggest something right here at the outset. Um, The sea in literature is always a place of the irrational. It's not our home. Um, Various writers have treated it as the irrational. Jung, the, the great psychologist, saw the sea as an image of the irrational, the unsettled, the indefinite. It's where strange things happen. Um, Some writers treat it as grace. It's where grace is working, where those powers beyond man's reason are at work helping man. So all these adventures take place at sea. Athena is never with Odysseus at sea. She's the goddess of wisdom. Why? What's going on here? What is he having to learn to see about himself and the world? In one sense, the, all the images, the adventures, the creatures involved are archetype images. They're images of invisible things inside us. So in one sense, I'm suggesting he's taking us to the inside of the soul to see those invisible things that we don't see. So the storyteller the storyteller, is giving us visible image, visible images of invisible things. They're archetypes. They're They're beyond our powers of sight. But if we don't learn to see into those things, we can't become who we are. We know that from our faith, right? And it's a God who revealed all these things. The Holy Spirit, who's at work? We don't see Him. But our faith is that He's at work in our lives because Christ sent Him. Whether we're on this side of the world or the other side, He's here. He's with every one of us. Are we aware of Him? Can we see Are we aware of those invisible things in our lives? So in every one of these episodes, Odysseus is learning to see um, invisible things. He's going into depths, these metaphysical depths that I've been talking about. Now I'd like to turn to the episodes and what I'm gonna do is just read from them and occasionally ask you guys, I'm not gonna cover the whole list because I I don't wanna press this first meeting because I think I've already, the way I usually do, cover too much. Um, So I'm going to just go through them, but before I do, any questions about anything that we've done up to this point? This is the center of the Odyssey. This is where everything happens and it's all a preparation for what he's got to do when he gets home. and What he's got to deal with there is a hundred suitors and his wife. Oh, by the way, the one thing I forgot to mention. The greater majority of these creatures that Odysseus meets at home are feminine. on the journey, the sea journey, on the way home, he has got to learn to come to terms with the feminine. And what we learn is there are very, very dangerous things in women. They're not as obviously physical or, or as o- overtly physical as the cyclops, you know, masculine force and eat people up and beat them down. Um, but they are terrifying and their, <laughs> their influence is not small. So Odysseus is not just learning to deal with male force, he's learning to deal with things in the feminine psyche that he's got to learn to deal with if he's going to come home. So the women here are not these innocent pretty creatures and he's having to learn to deal with some pretty heavy things. So all of this is very serious. these These are the inner things that we're all asked, or at least Homer, is helping us to see about ourselves. Any questions? You guys ready for this? Sit back. No questions. Sit back. Well, I have a question. Who? Go ahead.
1: Is he learning? Is kind of a simplistic thing here? Is he learning that he's not really the one in charge? And the fact that he's
0: facing winter for that. I... Say it again. The fact that he's facing the win.
1: And he is not really one in charge. That's kind of what we have to learn. Right? We have to submit to our Lord. And he's learning that, you know, he's fought battles, he's, you know, done all the fights, and then he has to go to women, which is a whole different situation. And men in, in that particular time, maybe more than now, felt that women were subject, you know, that could subjugate them, but he's learning that that's not quite true. And he wants to get back to uh, a marriage, which is a whole different kind of relationship, which brings, you know, that fullness of existence to him when you compare it, to as Christ married
0: to the church. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, you're not. No, 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 you're not. No, no, don't, you're not. Anybody have a response to that? I'm gonna i anybody wanna respond to what Karen just said? Do you have a response, Todd?
2: Well certainly with the two goddesses.
0: Can you hear can you hear Suzanne? Can you come
2: this is Mary This is Mary? I've just I noticed, because I, I didn't finish the book, is that uh, in, in dealing with all these adventures, when he got home, I would think that he would be anxious with his wife. But he was very slow. He didn't force himself on her. He didn't even say who he was. right She had to find it out. Right. Uh, and not only then, but she this,
0: doubted him. She tested him too.
2: Yeah, she was attracted to him, but she didn't know why. She knew there was something about it. So I think maybe that was one of the things that he learned. Uh, or maybe a, a virtue he had he had to learn was not to force himself on her. Yeah. I, I, don't know. I also noticed that she was, or I assume from the book, she was faithful to him.
0: To the marriage, that he was not. <laughs> we we have to we have to talk about <laughs> this fidelity thing and what it really. What we have to I, I suspend that question if you just hold it in a, If you could suspend it, because remember these are goddess figures. They're not they're not women the way. I mean the right. you know his his time with Circe or Calypso is not tying with actual women as we know them he's struggling with powers over him in, in both of those cases. The power over him in both of those instances was feminine and it's the greatest power in the work because he's under their power for nine years. For, of the nine and in the nine and a half years he's away, he's under the control of women. Circe for a year, Calypso for, um, but wait wait on fidelity until we get to them so we can talk about it. Doc, had, did anybody else have a question here Could, in response to Karen's question or, or comment, did you have something Doc?
2: Just, he didn't have anything.
0: Can you, so he here, didn't. can you, can you hear Suzanne? Can you come out here?
2: He didn't have any... Can he you hear her okay? He didn't have... Okay, good. He didn't have any power over Circe or Calypso. He needed the gods to release him, both times. Um, he couldn't, he couldn't do it himself. Um, So that is certainly, he had to recognize his subservience, his weakness in the face of those women. Um, I don't know that I would say he was under anybody else's power.
0: Well, he has to suffer. I mean, he's got to deal with the Striganese queen and the sirens. And he's having to deal with, in, in lots of these episodes, he's having to learn to deal with, the force that, or the influence or power that women can have over men, Karen. Let me let me let me take a stab at it just briefly and, and offer it tentatively too. But I I would be reluctant to use that phrase. He, how'd you put it? That learned that he's not the one in charge. But I want to qualify it. Um, when he gets home, it's clear that at one point he's in charge. Because if he doesn't, and I'm saying this really literally, if he doesn't, he's dead. These men are going to kill him. They're going to destroy the home. In fact, we know this. If you're, if you're reading carefully, you know that when Telemachus set off, all the suitors had already planned to kill him. So these are not nice men. And we know, I, or at least this is Homer. I, I happen to share with you. We know that lots of people are killers, murderers, that Christ says we carry it in our hearts. We're capable of, if we hate enough we want, we want somebody dead. We carry that around. These men act on it. They plot to kill Telemachus. So we know that when Odysseus gets home, he's going to be dealing with men who are, are not going to let him live and not his, not his son. So at some point, the last thing that I can say is he's not in charge. At some point, he is. And we know from the story that he is with help of the gods because Athena's been behind Telemachus and him both. But she's the goddess of wisdom. Um, She's not gonna, there's there's nothing that I can recall him doing that's unjust or wrong. When, I mean, and let let me leave that as a blanket statement because when we get to Virgil, Virgil's gonna have lots of not good things to say about Odysseus and Achilles. We're gonna be in a Roman world. But in this world, Homer sees Achilles and Odysseus both as images of masculine virtue. Now, having said that, let me go back because, in one sense, it seems to me you're right. Because one of the things that goes on on his journeys is he has to learn to put himself away and suffer things. And in that sense, your phrase is apt. Although I'm reluctant to put it that way, It it seems to me he has. He has. In fact, let me make it explicit. I'm having trouble with that phrase, and I I would like to find another way. Just for example, when he's with the Cyclops, he doesn't give his name. He effaces himself. That self-effacement, doing away with himself, taking this heroic character that he's brought from Troy away, will carry through even when he gets home, because you know that when he gets home, he puts on a disguise. or, Or put it differently. If Achilles had come into that home, what would Achilles have done? I hope everybody's clear on that. You would have killed all the suitors. and would have all the And, and that, that's a hundred suitors. And not one of them would have been standing at the end with Achilles. We know that. If Achilles had come home, those guys would be dead. When Odysseus comes home, he puts on the disguise of a beggar. He effaces himself. So there's a way in which Achille, Odysseus knows that he has to give up his... That he, that he doesn't want to live this male ego to just, I'm here, get out of here, you know, and as if that would be enough. The first thing he does is scout them out. He learns, he watches, He, you know, he takes his time. So it's not a man of force coming in and saying, I'm going to kill all you guys because what you're doing is wrong. So there's a sense in which what guides him through the Cyclops episode, so he's well away from Troy, he's already had a few adventures, when he, when he gets in that cave, he says, my name is nobody. From that point to the time when he unmasks himself, he's nobody. He has to learn to put himself away, to do away with himself, his own ego, to deal with these problems. But at some point, there's not a question of who's in charge. Because if he doesn't do that, those men are going to kill him and his son and his, they're going to rape his wife and do whatever they want. So, it, it see.
1: So
0: sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead.
1: If, if he had charged through all the files, without what he'd learned from them, you know, just with his background and having been 10 years before, so then, you know, and that would have been sort of where I was with, with the tech charge. I didn't put it very well. But I mean, without learning along the way, how it, how it can be dealt with. Right. Yes. Uh, without just murdering all the suitors, but that's what he knew that for. That yeah. That's for. And but, um, just how you can't go in and, and it's like everything has to be your way or, or the high. Well, no, I'm losing
0: that. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. I think your questions are good and your observations are good. Just remember this. Remember it, to try to put this in perspective. Homer is very clear that evil exists in the world, and it has at least as we in his books, evil exists in the world, and it has to be answered. Um, Menelaus or Paris and Helen both took off. I mean, there was a real betrayal there. The war started. The men were killing each other. Odysseus was very much involved in that war. We know he killed people, so he know he knows he there's a, he's capable of being a soldier. If somebody's threatening him, in war he had to kill people. Well, you know, also, if, if you remember back, that if you looked at the two extremes of the, of the um, catalog of the ships, Achilles was at one end and Aias was at the other, and they were both men of terrific power. They were the strongest men in the kind world. Odysseus was in the middle. So even if he was capable of being a warrior, of dealing with evil, I mean, if we had to go with... If, if if we were invaded right now, I, I, I can't believe most men wouldn't pick up rifles and, you know, we'd defend ourselves. Their evil exists. Um, we're, uh, terrorist attacks. If a terrorist came into our neighborhood and did something, I would hope somebody would take him out. Because if he didn't, how many lives die, you know? But Odysseus is not given to those extremes. We know he's capable. But we also know when he leaves Troy from his first encounter... He's a sacker of cities. So he's inclined to violence. I mean to carry that war. But when he gets to the Cyclop episode, my argument's gonna be something happens. And that's gonna carry through. And it, it it corresponds roughly, you know, to what you're describing. He's got to learn to put himself away and learn from and and you know he's gonna learn everything. I mean, everything's gonna be there. But he's got to learn from that at some point he's got to take charge, because if he doesn't, that evil's not going to be put to rest. He'll get killed. I mean, we know that from. And so will Telemachus. In fact, it's a little, bit, it's, a little bit, it's, it's a little bit odd, given the suitors. No, it isn't, because Telemachus comes home roughly at the same time. but he survives. I mean, they don't, they don't get to him, but that was their intention to kill him. But go ahead.
1: Said that um, Achilles would, do, would have charged in and killed all the suitors. If he had kind of taken it that way, that would be a very
0: different homecoming, and probably not as happy a life. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, or whatever, so he learned along the way, kind of the way of living again, instead of just killing again. Yeah, one of the one of the points I've been trying to make from the beginning is remember Achilles gave us an image of one man a war and I would argue he's the man you want in a war. Take him out of the war and you know that war would have gone on. It just would have gone on. The wars would have continued. So Homer's showing us the conditions and we know that the ultimate condition for resolving that war is Achilles accepting his own death. So he's not a man, he's not a man to go back into battle and rage and you know sign up for another tour to kill people. He's defeating people right and left. But the man that resolves that story is not a man who just wants to kill people because he's accepted his death. So Homer's deeper than that. There, he's showing us something about how important it is for a warrior to be present in a war. But remember the two alternatives is long, comfortable life, short life with honor. Now we've got a man who wants to get home and he's known for being a man of moderate, of means. And what we're watching is that he's learning something that Achilles, I mean obviously, Achilles had come, And the other thing is if, if Achilles had come home and killed those men, what would the collateral damage have been? We, we know that there were, you know, suitors and or, I mean, uh, servants and other people who were involved in the island, Odysseus's island, who were on his side. What would have happened? I mean, we don't know, but Achilles wouldn't be, he wouldn't put himself away in that situation to learn, and Odysseus does. Um, So there's an important quality of putting a a person, the, the husband in this case, he's a married man, he wants to get home, it's not Achilles. It's really essential that he learn to put himself away to become a nobody, and carry that, even in his home, home when he puts on a baker's mask. Because if he doesn't, he won't be able to do what he has to do. But I, the, the real point I want to emphasize here is to, to carry that through is to misread. that You may differ in your own personal beliefs, but this is what Homer's showing us. At some point, Odysseus has to step forward and say, this is over, enough, this isn't going to happen. And we know, we know, and everything we'll read at the end will prove it, these men are treachers. they're killers, all of them. They're going to um, kill Telemachus. They'll kill Odysseus. They'll take over the island. Uh, who knows what they'll do? These are tra- men are capable of killing. We saw that in the Iliad. What Homer's showing us is here's a husband and a father who's, who's bringing not just a soldier back to his house, but somebody who has learned to do something that Nestor didn't do, that Menelaus didn't do, and lots of men don't. A hundred suitors don't. So Homer's showing us a kind of heroism that men are capable of. You know, it's a notion the modern world doesn't have because we're just at such a screen. He's a man of, he's a man that belongs in the mean. Let me leave it there because we'll pick the, I mean, we've got episodes to look at. Let me just quickly read a couple of things to get you going because I want you guys in these adventures. Take a look on page 138. Karen, I love your questions, I'm really serious. Okay, page 138, in the middle of the page. God, sorry, 138. From Ili in the wild, the wind took me and drove me ashore to Ismaros by the Caconians. I sacked their city and I killed their people. And out of their city, taking their wives and many possessions, we shared them out. None might go cheated or as proper... Pro- so, what was one of the driving forces of the Iliad? Why do men kill other men? For booty? Remember, we've been through this for, bo- for possessions. Has it changed in our world? At the height of the list of valuable things was a woman. She's the most beautiful thing in creation. We're going to see another side of her in this book. Um, There I was for the light on foot and escaping inertia, but they were greatly foolish and would not listen. And then and there, much wine being drunk, they slaughtered many sheep. So immediately the men are uncontrollable. They're not listening. People are going to die. But he's a of city. So his first adventure shows the war carrying over. Go on to the next page, 239. Nine days then I was swept along by the force of the hostile winds and the fishy sea. But on the tenth day we landed in the country of the lotus eaters, live on flowering food. But after we'd tasted the food and drink, then I sent some of my companions ahead, telling them to find out what men, eaters of bread, might live here in this country. I chose two men, sent a third. My men went on and presently met the lotus eaters, nor did these lotus eaters have any thoughts of destroying our companions, but they only gave them lotus to taste of. But any of them who ate the honey-sweet fruit of lotus was unwilling to take any message back or to go away, but they wanted to stay there where the lotus-eating people feeding on lotus and forget the way home. I myself took these men back weeping by force. He had to use force on these men or they would have stayed. I'm going to stop here because we're about... I'd I'd like to go on to the... I think the Cyclops, but the Cyclops is such a... It's just central to this whole thing, so I went away. Who are the lotus eaters? Where do we find them today? These men who take the lotus and forget their way home. And he has to force them to come because they're so influenced by this potion, whatever that they don't want to come on their own. Come on, you guys. No, of, Lotus eaters? I, I, I know
1: about that, uh, Bob. And uh, the, the most alarming uh, phenomenon of that uh, what is taking men away from home is the incidence of pornography in our culture right now. Yeah. That uh, it is taking men away from their, their families and from their marriage. Yeah. Any of you,
0: yeah, can you specify one, though?
2: Pornography's
1: one.
0: Well, yeah, but this is from a lotus flower.
1: Drugs?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would say marijuana, crack, I mean, wh- whatever oh, the theory. drugs... When, when, when the people...
1: addiction. Whatever.
0: I, I mean, I wouldn't put pornography high on that list because, because that, I think that'll come into play later. What he's showing is that there's some drug... That once men take it, they're innervated. They don't have the energy. They want to stay where they are. They want to move. It's like you're in a trance. I, mean, I think of those things, When I think of those things, I think of people on drugs. Whatever they are, and they're various degrees. But the, but the point here is when, when his men started taking them, they had no desire to get home. So the purpose in life got undermined and he had to physically take his men and they were weeping because they didn't let it, I mean, I wouldn't, put, I wouldn't put alcohol, but you know, I would include it, but I, I'd say most directly drugs. Um, and I think about particularly marijuana um, and what happens when a whole people begin, with, how much influence it has to keep people from taking seriously a call to get home and you know by home, we mean more than, you know, a home. That, that for Catholics, for a Christian, a home means it's an image of the holy family, that there's something holy that, take, that connects us with another world. So it's not just having things or material prosperity or wealth. There's something else that goes on to home that gives it a deeper meaning. And once these people take this lotus flower... They have no interest in doing anything. The, whole, the, the journey's over. Let me stop there. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Very much Sorry. I said Odysseus is a thing. Odysseus is a thing. Can
0: you not hear me? Yes. No. No. You're no. good. I heard. Yes. Go ahead. Keep going, Anne.
1: Yeah. He's called Wiley. Huh? He's called Wiley.
0: Wiley? Yeah. yeah, Suzanne's using the word I just want to add that I, I, I want to be careful here. He, lots of lots of intellectuals are thinkers. He's also an actor. He acts. He does things. He's different from other men because he, he sees things. But he, but intellectuals can live in their heads and not do anything. Odysseus is not that kind of man.
1: He's a combination. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Man of many ways. Sorry? He's uh, a man he, of action, but he also thinks
0: about... Yes, yes, yeah. And and his, his um, depth of vision is going to increase through the, whatever takes place here. This is just the beginning, so we're just on the surface. We're going to get deeper and deeper into everything that happens. Let me stop there, because it's... I've never been good at finishing on time, and I want to change that here. Um, just a, a brief expression of my pleasure. It is so good to see you guys. Marilyn, um, Karen, Bob, all, all of you. Anne, it's good to meet you, and um, Melody, Melody. Amy. Huh? Amy. Yeah, Amy, all of you. It's just, anyway, Um, Welcome to you newcomers, those of you who've been around. It's a great, great book. Don't leave it at the talks, read it because it will, you'll enjoy it. It's just a very good book. Um, It was good to meet the newcomers. I hope you guys all stay safe. Um, And I'll try to get some reading to you before the next class. Um, Hope to see you next week, okay? Send me emails. Next, could you all email Suzanne? And wait, hold on. And um, could you be sure to check in six fifty I've got to send a notice out so we get checked in before six thirty because I, I I I don't want to lose that time so we can start at six thirty. Pleasure to see you all again. Honestly a joy. Thank
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Bye.
1: Thank you.
0: Bye. 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 Doing was melody.